the regulatory agency that they are representing in this litigation disclaimed that whole framework. Um, and so I guess wait and see. <laughs> Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Well, this is part two of a three-part series that was on a webinar that was sponsored by the American Association of Provider Compensation Professionals, otherwise known as the AAPCP, concerning the $345 million settlement for Community Health Network. And it was moderated, and I had a co-presenter. His name was Tim Smith with TS Healthcare Consulting. So if you've not listened to part one, I would strongly encourage you to listen to part one first, and then part two. And I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Well, with some of these, we're going to go into just the specific allegations and it's, you know, we're not going to cover every point. Feel free to download the slides and look at these, but the information from these allegations uh, came uh, from the, both the complaints and this one specifically, the breast surgeons, uh, these were individuals that were in private practice. They were hired in. The allegations evolved around comp per work RVU levels that were uh, in excess of the 80th percentile, specifically the 84th. Total cash compensation at the 97th percentile or 7% above the 90th. And then finally, uh, some of the allegations from the initial complaint were the losses. Uh, the loss of up to a million dollars on a single physician the allegation that there was actually three and a half million dollars in losses on the group, um, but when the referrals were included, there was actually a margin. Um, so these were some of the uh, specific allegations. Now, I'll let Bob and Tim chime in, but since this is the first example we've gone through, I at least wanted to explain, we'll try to keep with the theme of providing the allegations from the complaint and then having uh, Bob and Tim dive in with uh, some commentary. So Bob, yeah, we'll let, let, yeah, let me kick off uh, briefly. Uh, so the, the first one, and we've already hit on this, the hospital reimbursement differential. 
And you cannot take that into consideration as you're establishing the fair market value compensation. So by way of example, if you would normally, and again, I'm using air quotes, normally compensate this particular physician at $30 per work RVU, but we're recognizing the downstream uh, referrals and also the revenue, we're gonna pay you $50 per work RVU. If I use that as a basis in order to calculate the compensation per work RVU, that's a problem. The next is uh, that their collections included both the professional and technical component. The reason why the collections here are important is that some of the valuation firms were evaluating the productivity of the physician based upon collections. Well, you can't include the technical revenue when you do that. It has to be the professional component and not the technical component. And I'm gonna put a caveat there, unless you're a group practice or an in-office ancillary services exception under the Stark Law, but you know, I just need to put that footnote there, but this did not involve those two distinct ex definition and exception under Stark. They also inflated uh, the collections. And here you're starting to see a theme. If you're gonna use an outside valuation firm or person like Tim, then you need to make sure you're providing accurate information. Uh, they always say garbage in, garbage out. Uh, so if, if you're not providing your evaluator with correct information, uh, then that could, could be a problem with respect to any determination the valuation company uh, makes. And, and the next is, is uh, there was no monitoring. Uh, so a lot of times I tell my clients, we can get it 100% correct at the beginning or the commencement of the financial arrangement. But where most issues are problematic is through the monitoring or the performance of the operations. Uh, so they're not you know, monitoring the work RVUs or somebody just goes ahead and uh, arbitrarily increases the compensation without going back and receiving a subsequent valuation. So those were some of the allegations with respect to the breast surgeons. And so the DOJ says that because of these facts, the compensation exceeded fair market value between uh, 2009 to 2017. And Tim, you have thoughts? Yeah, just one thing I wanted to point out was this issue of the collections that were provided to the evaluator. There's often, right, let me say it this way, health systems need to understand that once they rely on evaluation, they own it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're feeding garbage in, like you said, Bob, garbage in, garbage out to evaluator, um, you're going to actually own that valuation. And look at what all the evaluators say in our, in our reports. We all disclaim or put qualifications on the fact that you gave us data. We didn't audit it. We're going to accept it and, and put it in our reports. And sometimes I think there's a false sense of, well, we gave some data to the evaluator. It's up to them to sort of make sure it's correct. And that's not how the process works. And so this is a kind of, you know, buyer beware, if you will, kind of, uh, thing for health systems to realize is you need to give the evaluators accurate data. And this is a recurring theme in many of the cases where the information given to the evaluator wasn't correct. We're going to see in some other specialties, uh, as well as the deal terms weren't really accurate for the deal. That's another recurring theme across KETAM cases in the past 10 years. 
Yeah, and also when you're receiving these valuations, there's always these list of assumptions. And part of the assumptions that the evaluator is using is the accuracy of the information presented. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you need to look at those uh, assumptions that the evaluator is conditioning. Because most of the time, I think Timmy will agree with me, most of the time a evaluation is a qualified opinion uh, as of a point in time, but it's based upon the information that's provided by the entity. Uh, so it, it's unless you're hiring the evaluator to go in and actually get behind all the numbers being presented, which is not usually the role of a evaluator. Uh, so you know, look at those assumptions and, and limitations on your, I'm going to put again, air quotes, qualified opinion. Right. Yeah. Everybody needs to read a valuation report thoroughly to understand because all valuations have that kind of assumptions and limiting conditions is what we call them, Bob, rather than qualifications. So. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving on, um, wanted to talk about uh, some of the allegations for the cardiovascular specialties. So as a part of this, the allegations include, once again, uh, recruiting various subspecialties within cardiology, vascular surgeons, so on and so forth. The allegations included compensation being set that include this hospital reimbursement differential, similar um, to what was outlined before, resulting in 90th percentile plus comp. Um, there was attention in this paid to uh, the substantial increase in income from private practice and those corresponding costs to the health system uh, once this transaction occurred. And then finally, and you know, going with Bob about the you know, opinion shopping, there were allegations of seeking different uh, outside uh, valuation support. Um, some of that include um, you know, not hiring, allegations around not hiring evaluator because certain caps were being requested to, to put in place. Uh, also, um, using another valuator um, because, you know, having lower, you know, fair market value rule of thumb benchmarks. In either event, in that situation, the allegations did evolve substan sub substantively, excuse me, around that. Yeah, and before um, you go to that page, uh, the next slide, you look at the, the third bullet point down. And so we're talking about the overall compensation from these private practices cardiologists and the CT surgeons, more than 100%, they doubled their income. And uh, I was interviewed on this case recently where I said it, it's not inappropriate uh, to provide higher compensation as an employee physician versus private practice, but there has to be some justifiable reasons. Maybe the hospital's better at, at collections. And a lot of times physicians aren't gonna say, well, I'm, I'm making 200,000 here, and if I'm only gonna make 200,000 at the hospital, then why do it? Uh, there, there usually is, if you're gonna change uh, positions, there usually is a bump. It's not 100%. It may be more in the line of you know 10, 15% increase uh, from one to another. But you know we've got to be careful about still evaluating the compensation as being fair market value. So turning to the next slide, is that uh, continuing with these allegations that some of these deals were approved despite having uh, valuation support. And, and I think the second bullet, and we're going to get this later on uh, in the presentation, is that 
uh, it was alleged that community had internal compensation guidelines, but uh, they exceeded those guidelines. And as one board member pointed out is that the excess over their guidelines became the norm instead of the exception. And so if you're going to establish internal guidelines, you're gonna to need to follow those guidelines or have clear documentation as to why the, the guidelines should not be followed, you know, based upon the facts and circumstances of that particular transaction. Yeah, Bob, and a couple of quick comments. Uh, I know we, I'm gonna talk about opinion shopping uh, uh, later on here, as well as the issue of pay increases post-employment, uh, but I wanna point out something here about uh, the use of outside valuations, because I often hear it said you have to have an outside valuation, and that's actually not true. CMS explicitly stated that in both the old Stark regs and the new Stark regs, and they're pretty animate about the, the idea you don't have to have a professional evaluator give you a valuation. And in this case, and, and by the way, this is, there's been a lot of cases come up where they didn't get evaluation, and they, mm -hmm. I've never seen them get dinged for that. But if you've got internal guidelines, if you're setting these yourselves, you're going to be expected to follow this. And it's it's interesting because the DOJ unsealed another case a few weeks ago involving Stewart Healthcare, where there was no valuation performed, but they had internal guidelines and they weren't, according to the allegation in the complaint, they weren't following their own guidelines. And so I think it's, it's interesting to point out if you're doing this yourself, you need to follow your own guidelines or else that's going to be essentially flagged as a problem. Exactly. Perfect. Well, and just to get into a couple of the facts quickly, and like I said, please feel free to download the PowerPoint in the handouts because we'll not be covering every single bullet point. But from the DOJ and original complaint, uh, there were in excess of 30 cardiologists hired. Um, some were receiving, you know, double 50% increases from private practice. Um, we've got some of the numbers there. Uh, when an analysis was done, uh, roughly uh, three-fourths of the physicians, uh, their total cash was 90th percentile or above, um, and three-fourths of them, the comp per work RVU um, was above the 75th percentile. Um, and also included in the allegations, and this goes back to the losses, uh, that community paid um, the physicians $2.23 for every dollar in professional fees, excluding um, overhead costs. And then finally, uh, within the uh, complaint and intervention, you will see in a few different sections, uh, allegations uh, that specifically include benchmarking. Now, we're not sure what survey sources or, or what might have been used, um, but within there, it did outline uh, the various specialties at a point in time. So with this slide, you'll notice it says a 2013 compensation review. Well, these allegations went back to 2009. So allegedly in a 2013 compensation review, uh, these specialties and subspecialties within cardiology had these uh, benchmark, uh, were exceeding these uh, benchmark percentiles uh, as a part of uh, that report and those allegations. 
And Al, just a quick uh, color commentary. I, I spoke on fair market value uh, compensation at conferences when I was in-house. And as a joke, I would tell everybody, because we all have to recognize there are 10% of physicians who make more than the 90th percentile. That's just a mathematical calculation. But I always said, don't ever compensate above the 90th percentile because all of the above 90th percentile physicians are employed by our organization, which cannot happen. So that's what happened here is that, you know, you had a lot of these physician compensation arrangements that were above the 90th percentile. And that should send a signal from a compliance perspective that you need to look at those arrangements to make sure that you can justify uh, such high compensation for so many of the specialties in this market. So turning to the, to the next slide, I'll kick this one off and then turn it over to Tim, is uh, the outside valuations prepared for the arrangement. Uh, a lot of, some of them did not conclude that the deal was fair market value, but they went ahead anyway. As Tim pointed out that uh, in some cases, at least as alleged, they did not give the valuators correct information. And there was a, a lack of support. And, and I think the third bullet point is, is important. They received a valuation, but the compensation that was entered into was above what the, the evaluators fair market value benchmarks were. So if you, as Tim pointed out, if you're gonna receive a valuation, you should follow it or you should at least have documentation as to why you don't believe that you should follow that valuation, but it better be something that your lawyer looks over and can, can hopefully assume from a legal perspective that you believe that it's defensible not to follow your evaluator's opinion. Tim, you have thoughts on this one? Yeah, I just, I wanna point out this third bullet point uh, of basically the deal gets changed after the valuation. That's a common theme that will come up in many of the relator complaints that you've, I've read over the years where let's say the deal terms were X and then the, they get a valuation based upon the deal terms at X and then they'll change it to Y, uh, but continue to pay as if it were X. And that's just one of these ongoing compliance areas. If you've got a valuation that said this valuation is based upon these deal terms and this compensation structure, you've got to continue to follow it if you're going to continue to rely on that valuation. And to Tim's point, I've seen it where the evaluator assumed that the physician and even stated in their valuation, the physician was a 1.0 FTE, but when the deal was inked, they were something less than a 1.0 FTE. So yeah, again, we have to read those valuations carefully and apply them accurately. I'll, I'll add another illustration, Bob. I, I encountered a situation where I was hired to look at a doctor to convert from one specialty to another, uh, and they were being paid at the higher specialty rate per work RVU. Um, mm -hmm. When I got in there, the doctor had already converted most of his practice to that type of uh, specialty, uh, and so was getting paid at the higher rates to do work that was normally compensated at a different rate per work RVU. Exactly. All right, well, moving on here, at least as it relates to some of these allegations, we can see that obviously a lot of data being sent back and forth, but specific to the neurosurgeons within the complaint and the complaint and intervention, uh, there was a focus on specific pay plans as it relates to these individuals. Now, there were four uh, physician uh, compensation and pay plans that were described in this. 
you can see that there were guaranteed salaries in each of these ranging from 650,000 all the way up to a model that was resulting in 1.3 million uh, in compensation. You can see that in some of these models, the comp per work RVU uh, was in the 90 to $97 uh, dollar per hour range. With physician A, the comp per work RVU in the allegations was higher, uh, but that also presumably could be um, with a lower salary, um, perhaps there was lower production and therefore the comp per work RVU was higher. In each of these though, uh, the comp per work RVU uh, was exceeding uh, the 75th percentile. And at least in a couple of these situations, the actual total cash compensation was exceeding uh, the 90th percentile. So Tim, I'll let you um, at least talk about uh, the use of valuations and survey benchmarks within this case. All right. Th yeah. Thank you, Alex. Just a couple of notes here. There's a lot of benchmarking going on in the allegations of looking at where physicians' compensation uh, ranked on the survey scale, as well as uh, many evaluators who use that kind of approach to do FMV. I think it's important we understand uh, that is this a question of DOJ is adopting those percentiles as um, bright lines for fair market value. Uh, and this issue was also came up in a motion to dismiss that community filed and DOJ responded to and then the judge ruled on. And it's interesting because in that motion to dismiss, the, the lawyers actually attacked this whole survey percentile approach, uh, one that was being used both by community and its valuators, um, and brought up the fact that the new Stark regulations um, specifically critique and disclaim this kind of rule of thumb approach to FMV. DOJ's response was that essentially, hey, look, we're using community's own valuations as the basis for a complaint, our complaint that we filed, but we will be providing expert testimony uh, as part of the litigation to fully establish FMV. So I think it is a false inference to say, well, DOJ in this case argued based on these percentiles. We don't know what DOJ was going to actually argue in this case. And one little side note was that the, the judge ruled against the motion and that, uh, and one of the things that he talked about was there was plausibility because they failed to follow their own valuations. And I, I this is my personal opinion for what it's worth. For purposes of a complaint, it seems a lot easier to just say you hired a bunch of evaluators, they told you this was an FMV and you didn't follow it to make your case about FMV. But I think we have to understand that the DOJ would have to offer its own experts to establish FMV. Now, what's interesting to me, I wanna flag this, is that DOJ historically, going back to the Toomey case, well, really what came out of the Toomey case, had an expert that in the Toomey case said, well, you know, FMV is pretty much always going to be the median compensation to work every user compensation to collection ratio, along with some other factors. Um, and occasionally in certain circumstances, you can go up to the 75th percentile compensation ratio. The word on the street was that 
this 75th percentile became DOJ's bright line for when they looked at a case, what they would you know, immediately consider above or below FMV. Now, if you've read the new Stark regulations, you know that CMS specifically disclaimed that kind of approach. And um, by the way, as part of the public comment process, this is something that my colleague and I, Mark Dietrich, raised to CMS, which was if, if the government's position is the 75th percentile is the proverbial Rubicon for FMV, then you need to say that. If it's not, you need to say that too, which is what they did. The other part of that was you need to get on the phone to DOJ and have a chat with them about what are you litigating on? This case was filed in January of 2020. The new Stark regulations final were released kind of unofficially in late November, published in the Federal Register in November of 2020, and then were effective in early 2021. So this case doesn't have that, uh, it doesn't cover that period. So we don't know what DOJ is going to do at this point. Uh, I think it would be hard for them to whip out a kind of rule of uh, thumb approach to all these cases and say, well, anything above this percentile is not FMV because the regulatory agency that they are representing in this litigation disclaimed that whole framework. Um, and so I guess wait and see <laughs> what happens in the future. But I think it's worth pointing out that these citations of certain percentiles do not establish some part of DOJ's point of view on FMV. Agreed. So I guess, Alex, turning to the next slide, we're transitioning now to for another uh, DOJ allegation. This has to deal with the volume or value of referrals. Uh, so there's this incentive compensation plan that had three components. They had base salary, retention compensation, and incentive compensation. All those are perfectly justifiable. However, under the incentive compensation, uh, there were three components, a physician-driven metric, a network metric, and a service line financial performance. Now, from a phys physician-driven, if you're focusing on quality or cost reduction or something like that, that's perfectly acceptable and defensible. Uh, I want to focus in on the service line financial performance. And this kind of harkens back to the Halifax case where they, they really, they, there was a bonus program in the Halifax case where if the medical oncology service line met their budget, anything over the, uh, the in excess of budget, 15% was paid to Halifax's employed medical oncologists because those medical oncologists had the ability to affect the financial performance of that service line based upon their referrals. And so I think that the service line financial performance is a key issue that the government and the QUITAM relator were focusing on because if the physicians can drive financial performance within that service line based upon their referrals, then it is based upon, or it's asserted it could be based upon the volume or value of referrals. I was asked a question recently because of the, the community case, whether or not financial performance could ever be considered. And I think that if you have a very large physician network, or if, if you want to base it upon the entire enterprise of the hospital system, 
then one physician's referrals or even one specialty's referrals can't really impact the overall performance. There's not a direct correlation. Um, one can argue that there is an indirect and it depends on how far indirect yeah, that can be. But if you have like some triggers, I would say you're going to be paid this bonus only if the enterprise exceeds budget by 5% or whatever. So those little switches that go on within a compensation model can occur, but if it's, if it's directly tied into the service line and flipping to the next slide, so I, I think it's the distinction between the service line profit bonus versus the system's ability to pay. But in, in this case, uh, because it was impacted on the service line and these employed physicians had the ability to impact the financial performance of that service line. Again, here we're talking the technical component, what they're referring into the hospital, the hospital ancillary services, the admissions for inpatients and outpatients for which the hospital can bill the technical component. Uh, if they have the direct ability to impact that financial arrangement, then it's tied into the volume or value of their referral. So, Again, incentive programs are good and they're defensible, but you have to make sure that that you're not stepping into a volume or value of referrals problem with how you're calculating the compensation in that incentive. And then we're gonna be flipping into losses and I, I know Alice wants to talk about losses, but again, a loss does not equal fraud. Uh, it's, it's how the loss is created and the magnitude of the losses. So I'll, also, this was stated in the final rules that there are facts and circumstances that can justify losses with respect to employed physicians, especially because hospitals and hospital systems operate their physician practices differently than if you're in private practice, a lot of times by stripping the ancillaries um, and, and other factors. So uh, I don't want any listener to believe that, okay, we're taking a loss on this physician arrangement, so therefore that is not commercially reasonable. That's not what the government has, has stated in the final rules or otherwise. There are some uh, experts out there, Tim's not in this camp, but there are some experts out there that believe that a loss equals fraud, uh, but uh, th that's not what the law says. So Alex, I, hopefully I didn't steal your thunder on this one. No, well, I, 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 the only thing I will add since it's up on the screen for everybody is that this was a table that was found in the initial complaint. So individuals can certainly look at that. There was more information here, but I'll, I'll let you talk about this one, Bob. Yeah, and, and, and this one, obviously uh, community hired primary care uh, physicians as, as well as specialists. So at least the relator's allegations were that because of the magnitude of these losses, uh, so $158,000 per physician for primary care, $393,000 per physician for specialists, that the arrangement or the compensation would not be fair market value and would not be commercially reasonable because of those losses. Recently, MGMA uh, ran a survey about the average revenue generated per physician hired by a hospital. And at the median, it was a negative 150. And so when you take a look at that, so you know, losses do occur if you're just looking in isolation with the physicians. And, and I know that uh, the government in the final rule said you need to have a plan to uh, decrease those losses or eliminate those losses, or you need to justify why those losses are occurring. But these were the allegations by the relator. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, 
the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.